morning, everybody. It's Christmas time. Have you noticed? <laughs> um, this is a lo- the last three Sundays we've been looking at uh, some aspects of the Trinity. And now we just uh, got this Sunday before Christmas weekend next weekend. And uh, this is a sort of introductory time to Christmas. But I guess that um, one of the last things you want is another sermon on the Christmas story. You probably had hundreds in your lifetime, and you could tell the story backwards. And although we read that chapter from, Philippian, uh, from uh, Luke chapter 2, you could have probably recited it, because we've read it so many times. Um, so today, I am going to be thinking about that, but, but in one particular aspect, one particular way of looking at the Christmas story that came to me as I was reading this passage a little while back and I'd noticed, I noticed something there that I hadn't quite grasped before. Um, I personally feel that we don't have anything to share with anyone except what's in this book. And uh, therefore, I normally would want to take the Word of God and expound a story, expound a passage, open it up and break it Uh, break it down and so on. But I'm not going to do that this time, but I'm going to take sort of a theme that comes from the story of Christmas, etc. We are just a few days before Christmas, and uh, we will be reading this story, no doubt again, I don't know, but uh, no doubt again over the coming week. But in the reading that we had together, you probably noticed that there are two occasions where it says that Jesus was wrapped. says that Mary, when they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. Then the announcement went to the angels, and the angels uh, to the shepherds rather, and the angels said to the shepherds, "This will be a sign to you: you will find a baby wrapped in clothes and cloths and lying in a manger." <coughs> <coughs> I'll have to excuse me if I cough a little bit. I picked up a cold while I was away, but it's fine. But uh, both occasions it talks about the baby Jesus being wrapped. And it set set me thinking about this whole business. And so I've entitled what we're going to talk about this morning, Christmas Unwrapped. Unwrapping Christmas itself. Uh, We're in the last few days before Christmas, and uh, Christmas is on a Monday, tomorrow week. And because of that, we tend to think, oh, it's not even next weekend, you know. It's, and we think it's a long time to come, go, but it's not, of course. It's only just a few days before Christmas. Maybe we think there's plenty of time, but there's not. And this week, for many people, most of us, I guess, will be filled, apart from the routine of life, with preparations and getting ready. And amongst those things, we will be wrapping presents. Many of us will anyway. And I wonder, have you ever thought why we wrap presents? It's interesting, isn't it? Why do we bother to, to, to wrap them? I, I thought of a number of reasons, and you can think of lots, no doubt. We do it to, to increase interest, to uh, add interest to it, a bit of intrigue, a bit of color and excitement, to make that pair of socks more ex- exciting and more interesting. So we wrap it in lovely colored paper and so on, which is exciting until you open it, and <laughs> it's fine. Or maybe it's to add something to the present that we wrap them, to sort of enhance the present. If, For example, if you give a pair of 
if you're wealthy enough and give a pair of sheepskin gloves to somebody. Well, what have you done? Well, you've given them a pair of sheepskin gloves. But if you wrap them in colored paper, then it becomes something special because it's associated with Christmas. And it becomes something much more exciting. And it links the giving of a gift to the event that it celebrates. And you can think of other uh, reasons why we wrap presents. But there are several ways in which we use the word to wrap or wrap up. At the close of this service, I don't know how Darren's going to conclude, but he could easily say at the end, now to wrap up our time together, we're going to sing a song or we're going to have coffee together or whatever it might be. And what we mean by that is that we're concluding the time. We wrap it up. We conclude the time. This year, we'll conclude on the 31st of December, which is a Sunday, and that will be the wrapping up of 2017, the conclusion. But also, we use it, of course, the word wrap up, to protect things. That's presumably why Jesus was wrapped up in that manger. I mean, lying in hay, a little baby naked in hay, it couldn't have been too comfortable. So it's right that he was wrapped up. It protects, it uh, gives them some care and so on. Um, Especially in cold weather, we talk about wrap up well because it's very cold outside. But there's a third way of using it, and that is we wrap things to conceal, to hide, to conceal things so that you don't really see We do it with medicines. We wrap up a bitter pill in a sugar coating, or perhaps it's not sugar, whatever it is that they use these days, so that it slips down easily and you don't taste the bitterness of the medicine. You wrap it up to conceal it. Some take some honey and plenty of money and wrap them in a five-pound note. Well, the owl and the pussycat do it, but it's to conceal what is inside the present that it is done like that. And presumably that's what Churchill meant when in 1939 he said that Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. (laughs) What he was saying was when you look at Russia, we just can't understand it. It's wrapped in so many layers that we find very difficult to penetrate. We really can't see what Russia is all about or what their policies are all about. Now, when it comes to Christmas, One of the greatest ironies for us is that what Christmas is meant to be can so easily end up being quite the opposite of its intention. This is meant to be a week of celebration, which above all other times, perhaps, is intended to do one thing, which we'll come to. But it ends up doing exactly the opposite. Christmas is intended to show us what God is like. But Christmas so often does exactly the opposite. It wraps God up in so many other things so tightly that we never actually see God in it and understand. It's the very opposite of the revelation of God. It is the concealing of God. So we need to unwrap what Christmas is about. His humble birth is now wrapped in the arrogance of outdoing one another in giving gifts. His selfless love is covered with thick layers of greed, fueled by the must-have advertising on television and elsewhere. The quiet gentleness of Jesus' family. Remember, Mary kept all these things and she pondered them in her heart. The quietness of that loving family is now drowned out by the noise and jingles 
and the relevance of today. The sacrificial humbling of Jesus giving himself that Paul speaks of when he speaks in Philippians chapter 2 saying that he humbled himself. That is all drowned out by our materialism. So what better thing could there be for us at Christmas than to pause and to unwrap what Christmas is about? What is this gift? What does it show us? By the way, as an aside, um, I haven't really thought much about it, but as an aside, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, that Jesus came into this world and it's, he's described as being wrapped up. We've already touched on that. Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger. The shepherds were told he will find him wrapped. He went out from this life when they took him down from the cross and they wrapped him up and laid him in a tomb. And uh, it's interesting that in John 19.14 says they took the body of Jesus and they wrapped it. So let's pause and unwrap Christmas a little bit. Nothing new, but it'll just remind us of what we're doing at Christmas time. Now, of course, the incarnation is a mystery. It's a story that is so easily understood on one level, but so difficult to understand on another level. Paul said that. Paul called it that. He said, it's a great mystery beyond all question. And what was the great mystery? He appeared in a body. That's the great mystery, that he appeared in a body. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body. It is mysterious. Why should it happen? Now, with, all the, with that and with m- many things, there are two sides to it. And we can understand so easily when we look at it from one angle, but when we look at it from another angle, it's so difficult to understand. There are lots of situations like that. For example, let me just mention one in passing. Um, we sometimes talk about the problem of God's need, his right in, of sending some or allowing some to go to hell. And we say, how can a loving God possibly send people to, a, to hell? That's one way of looking at it. But I can tell you this, that when you begin to grasp what God has done for us in Jesus and you understand a little bit more, in the light of the evil of sin, which is incidentally, the Bible says, a prior understanding to living a life of repentance. When you understand that, the mystery changes not to how can God possibly send people to hell, but why doesn't God send everybody to hell? It changes. Because you've come to grasp something else that changes the whole picture. Why doesn't he send everybody to hell? That's what the mystery is. Depends on the angle you look at it. So Paul says the incarnation is a great mystery that he appeared in a body. Now, the importance, the relevance of that is that until Jesus came in a body, to borrow Paul's expression, no one knew what God looked like. Obviously. Nobody knew what God looked like. But there's plenty of indication right through the scripture that person after person, group after group, they wanted to know what God looked like. They longed to know what God looked like. But he couldn't be known. He couldn't be seen because of who God is. 
1 Timothy 6 verse 15, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen nor can see. To him be honor and might forever. John 4, 46. No one has ever seen the Father except the one who is from God and has seen the Father. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 1 John 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. Deuteronomy 4, verses 10 to 12. Remember the day you stood before the Lord God at Horeb. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire and the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but you could not see his form. There was only a voice. Yet the people wanted to see God. They longed to see God, though they could not. Moses said to God, show me your glory. And God said, you cannot see my face and live. Exodus 33. And yet you read in the Old Testament a privileged few who at one level did see God, which makes it rather confusing. Jacob, for example. Genesis 32. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God. Gideon, Judges Chapter 6, when Gideon realized it was an angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. By the way, you'd think he'd say rejoice. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He didn't, he said alas. Samson's parents took a similar line in Judges chapter 13. Then Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we've seen God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Did you notice that? There was, because they saw the Lord, they were terribly frightened. Alas! He said to Manoah, we're going to die now. We've seen the Lord. Because the scripture says nobody can see God and live. So on the one hand, there's this deep longing to see God, expressed again and again. And on the other, there's the fear of seeing God. Because if they saw God, they would die. Remember, Philip said to Jesus on one occasion, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said to him, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. (coughs) Don't you know me, Philip? He who's seen me has seen the Father. There was a deep dissatisfaction in Philip when he was saying, I want to see God. You keep talking about him, but I want to see him. Now, what are we to make of the statement that God said to Moses, nobody can see God and live, and yet we've got this list of people who apparently saw God. Well, the answer is found in John 1, verse 18, which says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now what that is telling us is this, that all the instances of seeing God in the Old Testament are instances of the pre-incarnate Christ, who is God, 
who is the Son, the pre-incarnate God revealed, uh, revealing himself or being revealed to them in the Old Testament. We've been thinking about the Trinity the last few weeks. This is one aspect of the Trinity. We cannot see God the Father, holy, holy, holy God the Father, and live. So when he needed to reveal himself, it was through his Son that he revealed himself. By the way, that's the, the, the huge difficulty that the Jehovah's Witnesses have. They have to translate that verse, um, John 1.18, uh, quite differently. Because to them, when he, Jesus said, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, he's made him known. They don't think Jesus is God. So they can't use that verse, so they have to mistranslate it. And with other verses as well, of course. And then you come to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, the first letter of John, and catch something of the, well, it's the breathless wonder of John as he says to those he's writing to, you know what God is like? He's the one we've heard with our ears, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at. Which, we have, which our hands have touched. That's the one we're proclaiming to you. He's appeared to us. And he can almost not understand this. That now, he said, yes, we, we, we come to realize who he is. This is God. It's Jesus, but it's God. And we know that God can't be seen, but we can see Jesus. We touched him, we, we heard him, we looked at him. Our eyes beheld him. So the unwrapping of Jesus enables us to see God, to see him who he is. He who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus said to Philip. At a human level, level of course, Mary wrapped Jesus as a little baby, necessary for his health, his comfort, and his protection and so on. But she did not wrap up his glory she could not do that. She would not want to do that and was not intending to do that. But the problem is his essential deity is not so easily seen at Christmas time in, in our culture. So Christmas is a time of God unwrapped. The trouble is that we're so keen to see God that we wrap him up in other things so he can't be seen. Because we want to see God, we pursue things that we hope will help us see God. Help us have God revealed to us. But in fact, what they end up doing is concealing rather than revealing. That's what's happened down history. And perhaps especially at Christmas time. And we too as Christians are not exempt from the pursuit of the peripheral, the irrelevant, the marginal, the distractions. Things that are not wrong in themselves, but they take our eyes off the reality of the central thing. That's what Paul's argument is in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, Oh, that I might know him. I might know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He'd just been talking about his own commitment and his own um, self-sacrificial life his own spirituality. And he's saying, I've got done all these things, done all those things. I was brought up this way and I've done this, that and the other. But I want to know him. 
That's what I want. All these other things, he said, are totally irrelevant. They are rubbish. The only thing that matters is knowing him, all my religious observance, all my study of theology, all my passion for doing God's will. It all amounts to nothing if I don't know him. I need to know him. And we could add, here in the 21st century, all our costly efforts, if they are, all our giving, all our kindnesses to each other and to others, all our study of theology, all our work in the church, are nothing unless we know him, unless we see him. Our music, our evangelism, our Christmas celebrations, whatever has been planned in the past and in the future, are all irrelevant compared with knowing him. That we want to know him. Of course, all these other things are important and good in their right place. But they can so often conceal rather than reveal, which is what happens at Christmas time, especially at this time of the year. Our carol singing, our music, giving of gifts, our parties, our fun and our feasting, all good in themselves. Do they conceal or do they reveal who God is? Do they show us God? Because that's what Christmas is all about. And it's always been like this. The things we pursue because we want to know him, those things themselves become the means by which he's concealed if we're not careful. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The omnipotent chose to subject himself to frail human flesh. The omniscient, the all-knowing God, chose to subject himself to human thought. The omnipresent God chose to subject himself to the limitations of time and space. That's what we should see at Christmas and we long to see. Now, the rest of our time, let me just illustrate it with an illustration from Scripture. Not from Christmas, but an illustration from Scripture. Joshua, in the Old Testament, Joshua turned up one day going to the camp of the children of Israel, camped in the wilderness. And as he came down the mountain to see the camp. As they approached the camp, they walked down the mountain. Joshua had just just approaching the camp and he began to hear things. And as he got closer, took step by step by step towards the camp and he could see it in the distance, he heard a noise and he wondered what on earth this noise was. It was a noise that was so loud and so raucous, so penetrating. He said, this is the sound of war. The camp must be at war, he said. Sound of battle going on. But as he got closer, he and Moses, his companion, said, no, this is not the sound of war. This is neither the sound of defeat 
and the lament that comes from defeat. Neither is it the sound of celebration and rejoicing that comes from victory in battle. What we're hearing is the sound of singing, of rejoicing, and people celebrating, and people enjoying their fellowship together, and enjoying one another. And the sound of singing is what we can hear. It sounds as loud and as penetrating and demanding as if it is the sound of battle. But this is the people of God rejoicing and singing and celebrating. That's how Joshua saw it. But Moses was with him. He saw it a little differently. Moses said, this is not the sound of battle. This is something else. And it says, when he saw the golden calf and the dancing, his anger grew hot. He got hotter and hotter, more and more angry. He'd just come down the mountain from receiving the Ten Commandments. And as he came down the mountain, his anger welled up in him. You can read all about it in Exodus 32. Well, the whole chapter, really. And when they got to the camp, Moses turned to Aaron, his brother, the high priest, and he said, Aaron, what on earth are you doing? What on earth have these people done to you that you've done this? He was so angry. What have they forced you to do? And Aaron's response was, well, you went away up this mountain and you were up there and you didn't come down and we didn't know where you were and the people wanted something visible, something in front of them that they could worship. In fact, it says they wanted something to go before them. So I asked the people to join with me and they gave their jewellery and their gold and we made this image so that it can be in front of the people as they worship. And Moses was furious. Aaron, he said, you're meant to be the high priest. You've been given this, uh, this ministry by God himself. You have the care of the souls of the people in your hand. And you've done this. And he was so angry. He took that golden calf and he burned it. Then he ground it into, uh, uh, broke it into pieces. Then he ground it into powder. He sprinkled it on the water and he made the children of Israel drink it. By the way, have you ever thought of the strength of his character to be able to do that? How do you get the children of Israel to drink the water with the, with, with the powder in it? He was so angry with it all. And he said, don't you understand what you've done? And Aaron said, well, well, you should be the one that under, should understand, Moses. I, I mean, the people needed to see something. They needed God in front of them. Otherwise, God is so distant, they can't see him. I mean, all the other people around, all the other nations, they've got their gods they can see. We've just come out of Egypt, and they've got their gods, and they're all symbolized by the great bull. And their gods, with all sorts of names and titles, Isis, and uh, all the rest of them. Their gods, he said, in front of the people, uh, and they are able to worship them, whether it's Isis or 
Osiris or Seb or any other of their gods. But we had nothing. So we decided to take it into our own hands so that we have something to worship. We needed to see God to be able to worship and follow him. And Moses, if we're to be relevant in these days, if we're to be effective in these days in our worship, we need these sort of things. We need the excitement of having something in front of us to see. And by the way, it wasn't just any old calf (coughs) made out of a lump of wood that would split and rot eventually. This is made out of not even iron. Made out of gold. It's the best possible. Before you blame me, just remember it was you who disappeared. We didn't know where you were. And the people became so lost because they hadn't got anybody to follow. So we decided to take things into our own hands. Moses went on to say this, while you were doing that, I was up the mountain. Standing on the mountain, I was in the presence of God. Holy, holy, holy God. And he was speaking to me. I longed to see him face to face, but I didn't see him face to face, but I saw his back and my whole life was transformed and I was receiving from his very hands the tablets of stone that I brought down the mountain with the Ten Commandments written on with the finger of God which only in my anger when I saw what you were doing did I throw on the ground and smash them. He said, I was standing in the holy presence, transfixed, transformed in the presence of God. So much so that when I started to come down the mountain, my face was shining. Something of the glory that I'd seen of the holy presence of God was even marking the way I looked. And of course, Moses covered his face And we're told in the scriptures that he covered his face, not because his face shone. He covered his face because he didn't want people to see that it was fading, says the writer of the Hebrews. (coughs) There was Moses, standing in the presence of God. And they were saying, no, we'll do it our own way, thank you. No wonder he was angry. A little bit later on, in fact, in the next chapter, it says... God was talking with Moses again and Moses says, what I saw up on the mountain so changed my thinking, so changed my understanding, so transformed my life. I won't go anywhere unless your presence goes with me. I won't take one step. You want me to do this and that, the other, but I won't do it unless your presence goes with me. Until eventually God said, all right, my presence will go with you. Everything is for the glory of God. Everything. You know in the New Testament, Paul takes up that theme in in, uh, Romans chapter 1. And he puts it like this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress, suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, 
his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And we could add calves. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurities and the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. They knew God, Paul says. But the trouble was they didn't worship him as God. They knew him, but they didn't worship him as God. Neither did they give thanks to him. We're here at Christmas again. And we're remembering what Jesus did as he came to this earth in the incarnation. The primary reason coming for Jesus' coming was to show us God. Show us God. All the cross and everything else that follows is all part of that. But it's to show us God. And the problem with us is, are we going to worship him as God? Are we going to give thanks to him as God? And as we unwrap Christmas, yes, we shall enjoy all the tinsel and fun and the parties and the giving and the eating and maybe for some of us sitting in an armchair resting, (laughs) which is great. All of those things, whatever it might be for you, behind it all, we need to have that capture that vision again of holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So much so that you remember Azar, Azar in the Old Testament when, he, when the Ark of the Covenant was coming back from the Philistines. And uh, he was a priest. He was doing God's will. He, he wanted to serve God in the best possible way and he was one of those that was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back. And do you remember that one occasion they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart which they shouldn't have done. It had rings on the side so that it be carried, should be carried on the so- shoulders of the Levites with poles put through so that nobody had to touch it. But it, the ark was put on as it came back from the Philistines who'd captured it, came back to Jerusalem. As they came back, the, ark, the, the, the cart got a f- wheel in a pothole or whatever and it shook and they the about to fall off and as I put out his hand to steady the ark. And God struck him dead. And the thing was, David said, this is just not right. Look what you've done. Why should he do that? Why should he be put to death? He was trying to protect the ark. But the fact is, he'd forgotten, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And all that surrounded the ark, and all its significance, was to protect the holiness of God how great it would be if we captured afresh a vision of God himself at Christmas so that this holy one is the one that we worship as he reveals to us nothing less than the holy God himself may God enable us to worship him